Isaiah 53 is where we will be looking at for most of the morning. If you don't know who I am, I'm Bill Hilligans. I'm the youth pastor at this campus. Been here for a while, and uh, I thank Harry for praying for me. He came into my office this morning and said, could I pray for you? And I said, absolutely. Met Harry back in 1995. Some of you are not even that old, so I have been friends with Harry for that long. It's been a great friendship, and I appreciate that. Couldn't help but think is saying that last song, holy, holy, holy. When you look in Revelation 4, it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then it goes into this really description of the living creatures give honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne. And it talks about four living creatures, each of them with six wings. And what a beautiful picture in heaven as everybody is worshiping the King of Kings. What, what, I don't know if you take moments like that and just savor them, but to me that's just an awesome moment. I, I, I look at a picture in heaven and someday we'll be a part of it, just worshiping our Heavenly Father. Anyway, Isaiah 53 is where we'll be at. And as we've been going through the series in Matthew, I know that some of you maybe have different sermons that stand out to you. Some resonate, some challenge. What do we do with those messages when we leave here? Do we just say, hey, great message? Or do we actually apply them to our lives? The one that really stood out to me was about a month ago, and it was, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And Pastor Steve said this, He said we need a coup d'etat of the heart where God actually takes over my heart, where um, I am celebrating um, the eternal versus the temporal in life. And I realized that after that message that if I was really going to have a coup d'etat of the heart, if I was really going to live with the eternal in mind instead of the temporal that I had to prepare my heart each and every day. And what did that look like? It looked like me getting up in the mornings and doing time in the Word, spending quality time with God, spending quality time in prayer. And, you know, the amazing thing about prayer is this. The more you pray, the more you pray. You just keep praying and people come to your mind and you start praying for them and it's just really cool. But if I was really going to have a heart that was seeking God first, I needed to be in His Word and spend time in, His pr- uh, in prayer to be prepared to do His will for that day. But in everyday life, we pre- prepare for the day ahead. Some of you students that are in high school or college or, or middle school, wherever you're at, if you got homework, I hope you're done with the homework. You need to prepare for the next day. And if you're not done with the homework, well, guess what you're doing this afternoon? But we need to prepare. And if, if you have a job, you know, you pretty much know what time am I going into work tomorrow? What time am I going to get off? What does that look like? Some of you travel a lot, so you know your travel plans for tomorrow. I have to be at the airport at this time, that time, whatever. We prepare for the day ahead of us. And such things as Thanksgiving, those are always really big times to prepare for. We find out who has to bring what food and whose house is it going to be at. And this year we got an interesting text in my family. I'm not going to mention it was Shelley's family, but it was. And um, the text came across and said, this Thanksgiving there will be 
no discussion on politics. So we prepared for that day, right? And, but yet God says, don't worry about tomorrow. This is not worry that I speak about. This is preparation, being prepared. And I would not have been very responsible when asked to give this message if I had said in my mind, why do I have to prepare for a message? Jesus may come back before then. I would be wasting my time. I'll wait until Sunday morning. If Jesus hasn't come back, I'll get something together. That would have been irresponsible. So I ask you this question today. If Jesus really is the reason for the season, that Christian cliche that we use so often, and we feel good about it, well, Jesus is the reason for the season. If we really believe that, then how do we prepare for Christ's birth? Are we preparing for Christmas and the celebration of his birth, or are we caught in the everyday life, the temporal, being pulled and, and twisted from every different place. And Christ really isn't the sinner except for a quick little saying. Or are we planning for the eternal? What does that look like? Now God prepared the Hebrew nation some 700 years before Jesus came. Before the Messiah came, Isaiah prepares them. And it was not as much a prediction as it was a proclamation of God's plan for the future. Isaiah was God's mouthpiece. And we see this revealed to us in 1 Peter where Peter says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. You see, when Isaiah spoke these words, when he put these words down, he was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't Isaiah just being random. It was God speaking through him. So Isaiah 53, 1 to 6. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. <clears throat> he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he is wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. <clears throat> Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah starts out by saying this. Who has believed what they heard from us? You see, Isaiah wasn't the only prophet that proclaimed the coming Messiah. There were other prophets that proclaim this message. If you look in Malachi, it talks about this little town where the Messiah would be born in. And he says this. You see, there's going to be a certain amount of unbelief just with his statement here. He said, who has believed what they have heard from us? 
the unbelief of the Jewish nation here is anticipated well. It's actually a proclamation of the things to come. Who has believed what we're going to say? And in John 17, 37 to 38, <clears throat> John says this. He says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still not, did not believe in him, so that the word was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? See, this time John's saying, you guys are not even believing in Jesus by the miracles that you're seeing. The, what we as humans think of unnatural, that's natural to God. We heard that last week. These unnatural things to human, you're not even believing that. Jesus is doing these miracles and you're not even believing that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. You're not believing that even though he's doing that. And the prophet said, guess what? I'm going to quote the prophet Isaiah. And so he does. And many of our Jewish friends to this day still do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But here's the truth. Some of your family members do not believe that Jesus is the Savior. Some of your friends do not believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Some of your co-workers do not believe that Jesus is the Savior, that He is the Messiah. And we live in a country where we still worship in freedom. And in our first service, a lot of times we have a number of police officers and they always sit towards the front and kind of hang out. They worship They worship in freedom. They don't stand at the back door guarding the door for somebody to come in. They worship in freedom. And we live in a country where we worship in freedom. We can still be able to share this gospel and we will not get thrown in jail for it. It can still be proclaimed. But there's a big if here. If we are willing to proclaim it. There are many today that profess this gospel to believe this report that is there. Yet few who embrace the gospel and are really willing to share the gospel in everyday life. There are few who embrace the gospel and actually want to submit to the gospel. Isaiah says this, And to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. Now, when Isaiah says that, he talks about the arm of the Lord. When you go to the gym and you work out, there are the bodybuilders there. And the really cool bodybuilders, they have the really big arms. They have the big guns, and they walk around, and they look in the mirror, and they go, and you go, whoa, I someday want to be like him because he's strong. He's my Hercules, maybe. But anyway... When we talk about the arm of God, it's not about the bodybuilding God. It's about the power of God, the strength. When he talks about the arm, it means God's strength, about these amazing miracles that God is performing, that Jesus is performing. And yet there's many there who are not believing in that. There's many who fail to proclaim the good news of Jesus to others. I love this illustration But as I looked out at my covered pool, I thought about it. You know, if it's a blistering hot day outside, and I'm in my pool 
just staying really happy. And all of a sudden, my neighbors come around the pool, and they're standing around the pool, and they're sweating. And I go, hey, you want to come in the pool? And they go, uh, I'm not sure. Do you have enough chlorine in there? Yeah. Uh, how's the water? What's the water temperature? I'm not sure I want to get in. Maybe a little bit too cold for me. Ah, it's 84. They ask a few more questions, but I never invite them back in. Why? Because I don't want my pool to get too full. There's people in your life that you're okay with, that you've sent that invitation out a little bit, and they've said, no, I'm not sure I want to go to church. I'm not sure about this Jesus. And you say, okay, just stand there and sweat because we don't really want our pool of believers to be too crowded now, do we? This Messiah that is proclaimed here, it is never believed. But who's this Messiah that we are believing in? Isaiah says this, he grew up before him like a young plant and the root of dry ground. Jesus as a child had no beauty. He was not the kid on the uh, Gerber baby jar, you know, the cute little kid. That wasn't Jesus. The reference here, it speaks about his youth. And the king, this king that was to come, they were looking, the one that they were looking for him to free them from the Roman rule. He would be a model child. He would be the kid that was on the commercials on TV. And they got so many of them now at Christmas. My wife, we were watching TV the other night, and there was some adorable kid on there. And she goes, oh, what a cute kid. Jesus would not have been invited to the commercial shoot. That's who he was. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was a root out of dry ground. It was expected that Jesus would come from a noble family birth. He would be great. He would be noble. Instead, Jesus grew up with a father that was a carpenter and probably a ship's carpenter because he hung out with fishermen. He's a root out of dry ground. He grew up to a terribly poor family in the north. And Nathaniel, when Jesus calls him, says, what good can come out of Nazareth? But he grew up before God. God knew why he sent his son, but humans regarded Jesus as nothing. Those who saw him could see no beauty in the boy. He grew up from parents that were unwed at his conception. And in today's society, it's no longer thought to be a big deal. In this time, if you got pregnant before you got married, you could be put to death. That's who Jesus' parents were. They could see no beauty in the boy. Moses when his mother puts him in the river, is described as a fine child. David, when he is anointed king, he's described as being ruddy, handsome, with beautiful eyes. 
That's the kind of king that Israel was looking for. But that's not the kind of king that that Isaiah describes here. It was expected that this Messiah would live the good life. But Isaiah says that's not going to be the case. When the Messiah comes, his appearance will be nothing to look at. When the Messiah comes, here's what I want you to prepare for. I want you to prepare for the average child. And this coming Messiah, he will be despised and he will be rejected by men. Not only is this Jesus going to be the average child, he will be rejected by men. He will be abhorred. He will be a reproach to man. Men will reject him. Luke 7, or John 7, I'm sorry, says that Jesus is teaching at the festival of the booths. And the Pharisees start to ask some questions. And they say this, can it be that the authorities really know that he's the Christ? And then they say this, but we know where this man comes from, and when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. They're doubting Jesus. They're rejecting him. And then, and then this, the Pharisees plot to arrest him. And the Pharisees have to ask one of the dumbest questions in the Bible. They say, where can he go to hide from us? Hello. Jesus, creator of the whole world, he created all the hiding places in the world. He can go anywhere he wants. Jesus never lost a game of hide-and-seek with his brothers. Because he created all the hiding places. And the Pharisees go, where can he go to hide from us? Well, guess what? Anywhere. He is Jesus. And you're missing him. He was despised. He was rejected as a bad man, a mean man. He was homeless. He says, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And this Christmas season, many of you will go downtown Chicago to see the lights on the Mag Mile or to go to Kris Kringle Market or to go shopping at Macy's and look at the windows. But on your journey, you are going to see homeless people. And they will be the ones that are sitting there with their little 7-Eleven cups jiggling it, looking for money. And if the truth is known, most of us will walk by them and try not to make eye contact because we don't want to feel guilty and we're judging them for the predicament that they're in and they should get a job and get on with life and we don't want to make eye contact with them because we don't want to feel guilty. See what Isaiah says? Men will hide their faces from Jesus, same as we do. He was rejected as a homeless man. He was rejected, students, middle school, high school. He was a kid that sits at the table all by themselves, and nobody wants to have anything to do with him. Wow, Isaiah, you're painting a great picture of some Messiah really to believe in, right? He says this, he was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. And the load of grief that Jesus bore was heavy, but his own grief, he carried that to the cross without complaint. Jesus was constantly getting bullied. 
If it wasn't by the Pharisees or, or the leaders of the day, it was by the biggest bully of them all, Satan. Anybody been bullied by Satan? Probably not. Jesus goes into the wilderness. What does Satan say? Jesus, you haven't eaten for 40 days. I bet you're pretty hungry. Well, if you're really God, then make those stones into bread. See, Jesus, I don't think you, you're proved to me who you say you are. Jesus, if you say you're really who you say you are, then if you do this, this is all yours. Verbally, the authorities of the day would challenge him. We heard a few weeks ago in one of our messages, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? It wasn't a fair question. They wanted to trick Jesus. He was despised. And he was acquainted with grief. And the word grief here actually means disease. He was acquainted with disease. In this day, if you had leprosy, the skin disease that you could not get healed from, that was highly contagious, if you had leprosy, they put you and said, get outside the city gates, beg for your stuff. You cannot work. You cannot worship. You cannot do this. You are an outcast. Stay away from us because we don't want to catch what you've got. And we don't want to touch you. But what did Jesus do? He went out and touched the leper, and he healed him. You see, he was acquainted with disease. He was acquainted with the suffering of others. He hung out with the sick and the suffering, but yet he was despised. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God, but he is wounded for our transgression. He, the perfect human, took the sin of the world. He was the one who took the punishment of the world. Let me make it personal. He was the one that took your punishment. He was the one who took my punishment. We say the world because we don't want to make it personal. We've got to make it personal. Isaiah is proclaiming that this child is going to grow up without fanfare of good looks and, and beauty. But this is the child that is going to take my filth and your filth, my sin, my hatred, my gossip, my slander, all of that of yours, and he's going to take it to the cross. And he will be wounded, and he will be scourged under the Roman law. Under the Jewish law, you could be whipped 40 times. Under the Roman law, there was no law. And he wasn't only whipped, he was scourged. And he was probably scourged many, many times because the longer they scourged him, the more likely he was to die right there. And if he died right there, Pontius Pilate would not have to deal with the fact that he had to go back and actually crucify him. So if he could beat him to within an inch of his life, he, would, could not ha he wouldn't have to make the decision on crucifixion. He was crushed. He had wounds in his hands and his feet. He had a crown of thorns placed upon his head and dug into his head. And I'm here to tell you, I'm a wimp. Because if I get a sliver in my hand, I'm like a big baby. Shelly, 
Shelly, come here. I got a sliver. Can you see it? No, I can't see it. No, it's really there. It hurts really bad. Jesus had a crown of thorns dug into his head. He had wounds in his hands and his feet. And it was upon him the punishment that we deserve. But it is this punishment, it is this death that has brought us peace because he is the Prince of Peace. And by that death we are healed if we will believe in Jesus. And as we prepare for Christmas, as we prepare for his birth in this holiday season, I think we fail to see this Jesus. Don't we see the warm and fuzzy Jesus in a nice little manger of straw wrapped in swaddling clothes? Who wouldn't want to be wrapped in swaddling clothes? And that's the Jesus that we see. And so I ask again, how well are you preparing for the birth of Christ? Is it just a quick reading of Luke 2 on Christmas morning to justify yourself? We're going to read Luke 2. We're going to read the Christmas story now. It's good to read the Christmas story. Don't get me wrong. But if that's the only part of Christmas that Christ is in for you, you're missing Christ's birth. We fail to remember what Isaiah says here. All we like sheep have gone astray. We're not even like cows. I lived on a farm for a couple summers uh, in Minnesota with my uh, cousins. And they had cows and they had pigs. And, you know, cows, you'd let them out in the morning and they'd go out in the field and they'd kind of graze all day. And then you'd go, hey, cows, got to go in. And the cows would all come in and they'd walk in and they all found their slot. They didn't even have names above their slots like Elsie. Hey, that's mine. I'm Elsie. Uh, oh, I'm chocolate. I'm spotty. No, they just went into these, they just went in. Boom, boom, boom. It was really cool. I'm going, how did the cows know? They know. The pigs let them out in the pig yard. And what happens? They come back in. They come back because they're pigs and they eat a lot and there's a feeding trough. Sheep. They don't come back. They get out. They go. They get hit by cars, tractors, and eaten by wolves. And that's what Isaiah is comparing us to. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have no clue. We've turned to our own way. We wander aimlessly. And right now we see a country that went through bitter elections. And whether your candidate won or lost is not the issue. I've been asked this question a number of times since that. Who's the Antichrist? Who's the Christ? Isn't that the more important question? What are we doing with Jesus? We've turned to our own way. And as a country, God has said this is going to happen. Read Romans 1. He says, when you seek your evil desires... I'm going to turn you over to your evil desires when you seek the creation more than the creator. And that is what has happened. It's about us turning to our own ways. But even, even in this aimless, self-serving roaming, God laid the sin of the whole world on Jesus. And the Savior that is bruised is bruised 
for healing, uh, is for the healing of bruised hearts. In our depravity, he is our shepherd. Isaiah prepared the Jewish nation well for this coming Messiah. But for the most part, they rejected him. So I ask you this morning, how will you prepare for Christ's birth? Is it going to be this whole consumption of this Christmas season? i got to get the perfect gift for uh, everybody so that when they open it up, they go, Whoa, you are like the perfect gift giver. Yay, you. It becomes all about you. It's going to be about planning the perfect party. All the plates, all the, did I get the right stuff? Is everybody going to be impressed by my party? Can I suggest a few thoughts for this Christmas season to challenge you? I can because I have the microphone and you're sitting there. So that was a dumb question. Challenge you to embrace the salvation that comes from this child. This child is not beautiful in looks, but this child is sweet in salvation. And his heart breaks for your sinful heart. This Jesus bears your disease of sin and he took it to a sinner's cross. And if you are here today and you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to think about this. It's the most important decision that you will ever make. It's not about becoming a member of Bethel. It's about becoming a member of his eternal family, his forever family. It's acknowledging sin and trusting that Jesus died for that. This Christmas could be the best Christmas ever because Jesus is the best gift ever and God is the best gift giver. And maybe you profess to believe this, but you've never embraced it. You know it in your head. So, oh, I know Jesus died on the cross for sins of the world. I know that but you've never taken it from here to here. You need to do that. It needs to become real, and it needs to become personal. Maybe you're here today, and you really feel comfortable with your knowledge. I'm going to tell you something. Following Christ is never going to be comfortable if you're really going to follow Christ. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Jesus didn't die an extravagant death for us to live mediocre and comfortable lives. And we want to get in our Christian bubble and we want to stay comfortable. But that is not where we need to be. Because this death that he died, this pain that he went through, he said this, he went to the cross for our sins. And what did he say? Take up your cross. Take up what I just went through and follow me. And it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be a journey. And he's going to take you to all ends of the earth, and you're going to go places, and you go, I don't know if I should be here. Where's your heart? Are you pursuing him? This season, as you prepare for Christ's birth, embrace it and submit to his own power and not your own. Love your neighbor. This dreadful heat as these people stand around this pool of salvation. They feel this empty void. The heat that they feel is an empty void that they don't know know a Savior. And I'm going to tell you something. 
The pool of salvation can never be too full. And our church always needs to be a place where there's another seat for another sinner that comes to know Jesus Christ. And if we're ever too full or too good for somebody, then it's the wrong place to be. If you really believe that he's the greatest gift of all time, can I ask you something? Why are you keeping it to yourself? What's holding you back? A friend of mine wrote this in a book. Whatever happened to the radical Christianity that turned the world upside down, the gospel, the good news of Jesus that spread through the first century like wildfire? Look at the book of Acts. Look at what's happening. This gospel spread like wildfire. He goes on to say this, the greatest enemy of Christianity may be people who say they believe in Jesus but are no longer astonished and amazed. And those people who are no longer astonished and amazed are ashamed to share. I encourage you this Christmas to hold the child. When Eli Peake was born, I went to visit Jeremy and Amy in the hospital, and Amy graciously said, would you like to hold our baby? And I said, no. She kind of looked at me, and then she later said to Shelley, she said, he didn't even want to hold our baby. I don't hold babies well. I'm afraid of breaking them. You know, you got to have, <laughs> amen is right. You got to have the head just in the right place, and then you got to tuck your arm here, and you got to tuck your other arm here. And you got the baby, and you're tensing up so tight. By the time you're done holding the baby, you need a massage because you can't move the rest of your body. And then they say something like, you want to feed him a bottle, and you go, I have no other hands to feed a bottle to. I can't hold this baby. He's precious to you, and he's precious to me, but more precious to you. So I graciously said no, but as we prepare for Christ's birth, Maybe instead of the rush of the hectic season, <clears throat> we stop to hold this child and to look close into the eyes. To look into his eyes of this seemingly unattractive child. But this child that came into the world to bear the sin of the world, to bear your sin, to bear my sin. Maybe it's time we prepare for the season. The proclamation has been made and many people have decided, I'm not going to believe it. And some people, and maybe you're one of them, have decided, I'm not going to embrace it. Some have taken it for granted and, and will miss it in the self-centeredness of our lives. I don't know where you land today. But this message is not about canceling the party. And it's not about not buying the gifts. It is about the temporal versus the eternal. It is about where your heart is this season. Is your focus on Christ and why he came or is your focus on everything else? And if everything in your season it, this season is more important than the Christ, then you have missed the greatest gift of all time. And I would challenge you to embrace the salvation. 
Share the good news. Love your neighbor. We're going to have some cards you can hand out. It's easy. Guess what if you're rejected? I think our Savior was rejected and despised. I ask you to stop the season, stop the madness, and hold this child closely. You can't break this baby because this baby was already broken for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you loved us so amazing that you would send your own son for us, for our our eternity. And so, Lord, I pray as we prepare for this season, we've just got through Thanksgiving as we prepare for this season, I pray that we will do it well, that our focus will be on Christ and everything else will come alongside of it, that this may be a season that we love our neighbors and we really embrace the child. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.